Right, well, good morning, everyone, and I'd like to thank you all for joining this Sydney Ideas event. I want to begin with an acknowledgement to country and acknowledge the tradition of custodianship and the law of the country on which the University of Sydney campuses stand. We pay our respect to those who have cared and continue to care for country. I'd like to introduce the panel. Uh, we've got three speakers. We've got Matt O'Kane, Simran Goyle, and Minister Gareth Ward, who's the Minister for Family, Communities and Disability Services. Um, <clears throat> Minister, unlike the United States, we've done so well that we don't need any screens for our session. And of course, as the moderator, I don't have a mute button. And I hope we don't need it. But uh, look, I'd like to begin by, uh, by setting the context and introducing uh, what we want to talk about today. Vision impairment and, and blindness is a major urgent problem. Globally, there's over 2 billion people who have a vision impairment or are blind, and at least a billion people have a vision impairment that could have been prevented. Here in Australia, we've got about 575,000 Australians who are visually impaired and 66,000 uh, of our uh, population are blind. So locally and globally, eye health and vision loss are a pressing public health issue. Here in Australia, one vision in 10 is uh, to a GP is for an eye-related problem. The, the latest figures, which are a little out of date, show that over $16.5 billion uh, have been the cost of blindness and vision impairment. And that puts it ahead of coronary heart disease, diabetes, depression and stroke. And, in, and uh, importantly as well, the prevalence of vision impairment is three times higher in our Indigenous Australians than it is in non-Indigenous Australians. And additionally, the rapidly ageing population and the rapid growth of population in Australia will continue to significantly increase the number of Australians with vision impairment and blindness over coming decades. So there's an urgent need to develop new therapies, new models of care to address uh, the problem of vision impairment. And <clears throat> lastly, Advances in treatment mean that now genetically determined eye disease is the commonest cause of blindness in working aged people. And it actually now surpasses diabetic eye disease because we've got such, uh, we've got greatly improved treatments for diabetic eye disease. So I'm the director of the Save Sight Institute which is a centre uh, within the discipline of ophthalmology in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at the University of Sydney. The SaveSight Institute was established back in 1985. We're co-located with Sydney Eye Hospital in the CBD of Sydney. And this co-location has enabled uh, us to work very collaboratively with the hospital and with patients to combine basic vision science with translational research. And this is led to us being globally recognised as a centre of excellence in the prevention of blindness. Um, and our mission is to improve the lives of people with vision impairment through our transformative research, uh, benchmarked international standard clinical care and innovative treating, uh, teaching rather. And we, we have research groups in our institute that cover the, the spectrum of vision-threatening eye diseases from the cornea to the retina, genetically determined eye disease, neurological eye disease and, and ocular cancer. So the reason that we're here today with that background and context is that we want to talk about vision impairment and particularly vision impairment in the workplace. Vision impairment is a lifelong hidden disability and sadly vision impaired 
persons are often dismissed and overlooked and considered not suitable or not able to contribute to the workplace and the community. And this has led to, to there being enormous barriers in, in vision-impaired uh, people being in, included in the community and government and in, and in business. And now with the, the COVID epidemic, we, we seem to have had an unexpected opportunity to, to show how people who are vision impairment, impaired uh, can have uh, can contribute to society because there's there's basically almost a unique opportunity where we can unlock the potential of vision impaired people to contribute to the workforce to our community because COVID has led to a complete restructuring of how our our community conducts business. We've had to learn to adapt to rapid change, and there have been some unexpected positive outcomes and. We believe that this may be one of them, that there's a great opportunity for, for vision-impaired people. So with that background, I'd like to introduce Matt O'Kane, who's the, going to be our first speaker. Matt's the Director of Notional Digital Forensics. He's got had a long career in various leadership roles in dot-com and online marketing. So I, over to you, Matt. Thanks, Peter. Um, that was a great introduction. Thank you very much. Um, I just want to um, sort of set the background for this discussion. And just to really recap, Australia has done an okay job, not a great job, but an okay job at uh, helping uh, kids who are visually impaired, who are blind, get all the way from early childhood to the point when they're ready to enter the workforce. Now, remember, there's certain challenges in this group with a limited number of jobs that are available. So they've got to be kind of clerical, professional, managerial. And in the 20th century, reading, reading of printed material was a key determinant of success for people in these kind of roles. But in the 21st century, of course, we have computer technology. So blind people can have the computer read documents to them. Severely low vision people can have documents significantly enlarged. So technology has been a great enabler. So how do we go in employment? So sadly, since the start of the 21st century, employment, unemployment has stayed stubbornly high. Depending on whose figures you look at, it could be double to 4.5 times the general population. Underemployment is rife. Um, you know, uh, lack of participation in the workforce is almost double, and that has feed-on effects to poverty rates, which could be as much as uh, a quarter within this population. So we've levelled the playing field for printed material. Why does unemployment stay so high? Well, I think there's a few reasons. I think that one of the drivers is this fear of the unknown. You know, like Peter said, uh, severely low vision and blind people, they're not very visible in mainstream society. One of the things that uh, you would learn from working with people with low vision who are blind is that eye contact can be challenging uh, for, for people like us. And people find that very emotionally dissettling, not having someone give them eye contact. There's also a historical reason. There's, there's assumed... Um, uselessness, I suppose, within this community that that it, based on misunderstandings over years that that you don't get as many chances to get ahead as a low vision or blind person. And, you know, surveys have shown 
uh, that employers have this uh, in deeply embedded view that sometimes a low vision or blind person may not be as productive as a sighted person. And another factor, of course, is comorbidity. So when you have a serious visual disability or a serious visual medical condition, that occurs sometimes with another serious medical condition, and that can make employment decisions and employment accommodations very challenging. And it's also important to remember that comorbidity means that not everyone is going to be able to enter the workforce, but just because uh, not everyone can't doesn't mean we shouldn't try for almost everyone. And I think we also need to focus not just in employment, but developing role models. So these are people like Mr. Ward, but it's also um, directors, business owners, leaders in the community, people that, that, that let mainstream Australia see that vision impaired and blind people are just like everyone else and inspirational models for this community as well. So there's a couple of solutions we can look at. Science has showed that affirmative action, even though it's politically controversial and can be controversial, has, and it also, uh, science has shown it can have small, um, short-term negative impacts, but the long-term impact is, is very positive. And I think we're seeing that um, in certain programs coming up. We need to see more role models, so people leading organisations, directors in ASX 200 and other organisations. But especially, I think we need to see people with lived experience um, blazing the path. Uh, I think Mr. Ward might talk about his program, which was announced just before the start of the pandemic. I think it's the age of inclusion, where you have a New South Wales government targeting a massive increase in dis disabled employment, which I think is great. Uh, and I think the timing of that is great. But I think that the main thing I want uh, everyone to think about here is the pandemic has shown we don't need to live in a workplace that's replete with social visual clues. We're working from home okay, and no one cares that you, that you have a guide dog or no one cares that you, you can't read people's faces or no one cares that you're not looking at them. Misconceptions are reduced. Uh, they just care about what you can do. And I think that this gives us a massive chance to uh, unlock the opportunity for low vision and blind people to get into employment and to get into business. So that's my summary of the issues. Thanks very much, Matt. Um, we might move on to Simran. Uh, Simran Goyal is an associate at Ernst & Young, uh, where she works in the core assurance division. Uh, over, over to you, Simran. Thanks, Peter. So good afternoon, everyone. Um, as a young professional with an eye condition, working and succeeding in the workplace is a challenge. However, I think COVID has slowly begun to prove otherwise. Working with vision condition has its own set of dilemmas and it, sets in, and it starts in the interview room. Today, no matter how much companies pledge allegiance to diversity, those who don't fit the typical characteristics of a are immediately considered as other. I've seen firsthand how talented individuals with vision conditions are not provided a seat at the table because they cannot read off a piece of paper or they don't perceive their surroundings in the same way as their able-sided peers. Um, so to a lesser extent, I faced my own set of challenges from snide remarks because I read with an embedded screen and a larger font to an overt lack of understanding about what it is like to work with an eye condition. I believe that while we've made progress, there is still more that can be done. 
So our managers, directors and heads of organisation should bridge the gap between working and effectively managing those who simply see differently. So the National Eye Health Survey estimates that 57% of the total economic cost of living with an eye condition is attributed to a loss of well-being. And part of this is not being afforded the same opportunities as our able-sided peers. Just because we face a depletion in one aspect of our lives doesn't mean that our brains are less capable. COVID-19 in part has begun reversing these sorts of conversations. We're now no strangers to working from home. In fact, 82% of the workforce who is working from home has seen a boost in their productivity and their focus by up to 47%. I've seen the same shift in my own productivity in working from home. By having a more flexible work environment, I'm more productive and I also have the tools available to me to do my job properly, if not better. The question now circulates around how workplaces can integrate those who see differently into their own teams. I think workplaces need to come to terms with understanding that if capable, an individual with a vision condition will always come equipped with the tools necessary to perform at optimal capacity. I can attest to this as I am always equipped with the softwares such as ZoomText and functional capabilities on my devices such as text-to-speech so I can work just as well as the others in my team. By knowing what I need to see better and to perceive, there's no claims that my condition is a liability to my workplace. COVID-19 has shown the workplace what we were so afraid of for decades prior, that as a working population, we can work anywhere with any set of circumstances. I think um, as we move into a more flexible work environment, those with vision-related conditions are able to better perform as they can access the support mechanisms they need day to day. In light of what COVID has shown, I think organisations should harness the knowledge of, of that people from all walks of life are able to work effectively and efficiently if they are given the chance to show how they work and why working differently isn't necessarily a bad thing. In looking at the support that I was given throughout my schooling and university education to level the playing field, I'd love to see how companies take a more proactive approach to having conversations about what their employees actually need and facilitating those changes. COVID to me has proven that having a condition doesn't make me a liability, but rather it should show that our companies start seeing us as assets. Thanks, Peter. Thanks very much, Simran. That um, was really excellent, as was uh, Matt's. Um, without further delay, I'd like to introduce Minister Gareth Ward. Uh, Minister Ward is the New South Wales Minister for Families, Communities and Disabilities. And uh, I think we're all looking forward, Minister, to hearing uh, your, your perspective and views on visual disability in the workspace. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Peter. Can I also join with you in acknowledging the traditional owners of the land? And I'm uh, on uh, Gadigal land of the Eora Nation here in Parliament House today. Um, what outstanding presentations, I have to say. Thank you, uh, Simran and Matt. Uh, I feel a little bit like Elizabeth Taylor's seventh husband, in that I know what's expected of me, but it's going to be difficult to make it interesting after those two presentations, but I'll give it a go uh, and um, simply say that, firstly, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here uh, and I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Michael Spence, the Vice-Chancellor of Sydney University and the Principal, uh, for inviting me here, but also, uh, Peter, for your ongoing great work uh, in this really important field. Um, my story uh, is one probably very similar to, to Matt's and Simran's. I, uh, I have albinism, so I'm legally blind. I've been legally blind since birth. My 
condition isn't degenerative uh, over and above um, the fact that my eyesight will um, decline like anyone's does with age, but um, that can be uh, preserved uh, with glasses and other technology. Um, a little bit like Matt, I suppose you know, you've been on the end of um, all the various misconceptions. Uh, I know that when I was born, the doctors said, keep him in the dark and behind closed doors. Uh, I had some very unkind teachers that said, you know, he won't amount to much. And in fact, I remember spending time in the library in my public school in Bomaderry, enlarging notes during class time when I should have been in class with my peers learning. Um, so, uh, you know, if you were growing up in uh, you know, the 80s or before that, the, the supports through the education system, depending on where you were, uh, were not necessarily up to standards. Certainly, uh, they don't reflect the standards that we expect from our schools today. I actually had a, a principal at Bomaderry Public that took me aside and could see that because of um, the way in which my teachers were engaging with me, my reading was falling behind, and he actually taught me to touch type and brought my reading up to standard, which um, undoubtedly helped put me in the position I am today. But interesting story for you. Um, because my eyesight was not so low, or my vision wasn't so low that I required Braille, uh, I needed larger text. But um, back in the 80s, the equipment that I needed was very expensive. And my parents were, were small business people. Uh, we simply couldn't afford the uh, $5,000 that the closed circuit television was going to cost my parents so I could do my studies from home. Uh, my mum actually approached the local Lions Club that have a uh, a uh, program of Safe Sight, what's one of their uh, objectives as a charity, and uh, they provided that um, closed circuit television, which was a camera and a screen that allowed me to do my work from home. And, and that's certainly when my uh, education trajectory uh, excelled. Um, and um, I'm very, very grateful. And I'll always be uh, grateful to Lions for that support. Um, so I, I frequently say to my political opponents, if you want anyone to blame, blame the Lions Club International. Um, so I think uh, both Simran and Matt are right. I think it's important that when there are examples of people that have done well, it's important that we are an example to others as to what you can achieve. I'm um, the first Minister for Disabilities to have a disability uh, anywhere in Australia, um, and uh, I think that speaks volumes about our Premier Gladys Berejiklian's commitment to disability inclusion. But uh, you'd think that of all the professions that somebody with a vision impairment could select, politics would be the last. Can I tell you, if you think your opponents give you a break uh, because of your eyesight, think again. Uh, I cop every sledge and every barb uh, in the chamber that you uh, would have expected in the play ground and as a minister, uh, look, I have a job to do. And, and frankly, I expect to be held to the same standards as everybody else. But uh, without going too much into the politics, my seat, uh, which I represent as a local member, uh, was always a Labor seat. It's never been held by my side of politics before. And I often thought that if this was the career that I was going to go to next, uh, would people judge me differently? Uh, not least of which because I looked a bit different because of my albinism, but also because of my sight. Well, not only do they not do that, um, in my electorate, I've increased the margin each time, as I say, in a seat that um, should be held by uh, the party um, opposed to my side of politics. But I think it speaks volumes that um, even though some people might have their misconceptions about what people with disabilities or people with vision impairments can achieve, it's not the view in the community. And if you want any example of that, you only need to look at uh, the increased majorities that I've been fortunate enough to secure in my uh, home uh, electorate of Kiama, which um, is, of course, um, very humbling and uh, and I feel very 
supported by by that community, which obviously uh, is an example of the fact that the community at large wants to see disability inclusion. And from our government's point of view, uh, we were, uh, as many of you would know, the first to sign up to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. More broadly, we've seen 54,000 people who didn't receive supports before, including those with uh, visual impairments and blindness receiving supports that never got them uh, over and above what used to be provided. Uh, And as a state, um, we are continuing uh, that work and that advocacy. My first bill as a minister was the establishment of the Age and Disability Commissioner to guard against abuse, neglect and exploitation of people with disabilities. Uh, but Matt's right. He mentioned the um, the age of inclusion and uh, the Premier has said that she wants to have 5.6% of the public service uh, with an identified disability. Now, frankly, I was shocked that uh, we didn't already have that level of inclusion already. Uh, Agencies like mine, which is Family and Community Services, are well ahead of the game in terms of that target. Others are well behind. Uh, But if we're going to go out there as a government and say we want an inclusive society, it's important that we lead by example. Uh, And for that reason, I'm always uh, talking to business and industry about the importance of being an inclusive workplace and an inclusive industry because people with vision impairments and blindness will engage with services like anybody else. And it's important that um, business and industry also send a message that they are genuinely committed to inclusion. Uh, But if governments are going to say that, we need to do that. And uh, we're holding the various secretaries of departments to account for those targets. But um, I I really get annoyed when I see senior public servants say it's all about identifying people already in the system. Well, that's a great answer for budget estimates or a great political answer. But I actually want to see affirmative action at the employment stage uh, where we're actually identifying people um, with uh, disabilities, not just those that are visually impaired or blind, but uh, people who can add something to the workplace. And as I'm, perhaps I'm an example, perhaps not, depending on who you talk to, I think you actually get more committed employees because we want to demonstrate that we're up to the job uh, and uh, you will not realise how benefited your business will be by having somebody that brings uh, that lived experience with them uh, to the job. And I, as I think was mentioned by our, our previous two speakers, um, COVID has been a fascinating time uh, for so many of us because it has allowed people with disabilities to work um, in a different way. And I have to say, my own experience has been that it's more effective. Um, I spend a lot of time behind a screen and I need to because of the work that I do. But um, uh, by enlarging the print that I have, I can work just as effectively as anybody else. And uh, it's important that we recognise that some of the things we've learnt through COVID, um, particularly uh, the productivity changes that have made productivity of uh, government departments and industries and businesses uh, much uh, much better off should be perhaps BAU moving forward um, so that we can not only do more for business and industry and government, but also be more inclusive workplaces by using that technology. Um, at the moment, we're currently reviewing uh, the Disability Inclusion Act. Uh, I've gone out to public consultation, uh, including the Disability Advisory Council in New South Wales. Uh, previously, we had uh, disability inclusion action plans across all of our local councils and all of our government departments. Essentially, those plans are what um, each of those agencies has at its core as to how it's going to include people with disabilities in its operations, uh, and that includes people with vision impairments. One of the things I identified myself, um, and this came back as part of the feedback, is that some of those plans were not in an accessible format. Um, So that um, agencies and departments were saying, we're going to do all these great things, uh, but people with disabilities weren't able to see them. And in fact, I experienced that looking at some of the council's plans that were not in formats that were easy to read. Um, So we're going to give those NDAPs, those 
those uh, disability inclusion action plans uh, much more teeth uh, and make sure they're more transparent. And one of the recommendations that I'll be proposing to Parliament is that all of those plans, as a very basic starting point, be in an accessible format. Um, as far as I'm concerned, this is the age where people with disabilities and particularly those with vision impairments can shine. Uh, we have so much more opportunity with technology these days from the old closed circuit television that I had to use to be able to sit up in bed and read a, a book with an iPad, which I could never do as a kid. Uh, there is so much more opportunity to demonstrate the potential of people with vision impairments and blindness. And uh, as was said earlier, and I'll, I'll conclude on this point before opening the questions, uh, it is up to us, uh, those of us that have got the, the courage to be bold and to be brave, uh, to show to others what they can achieve um, because there is so much you can do in life uh, and sometimes you just require that encouragement and that inclusivity to be able to uh, have the ability to reach that potential that is so important. Thanks very much, Minister. That was just a terrific overview. Um, I guess to sort of kick off, I know there are some questions from the audience already, and my colleague Professor Grieg is going to is going to help uh, with the questions and try and uh, make sure that we get through as many as we can. But just to begin, maybe touching on some of the things that each of the speakers have said, we there is an affirmative action plan. Is, is there some low-hanging fruit, some easy sort of first steps that we can do to try and make uh, businesses be more accountable and more inclusive and, and to actually make the affirmative action plan work? Oh, well, look, I think um, it comes back to actually working with industry groups and making them aware. I mean, look, every business has so much that it's doing uh, that it's important to actually give these issues profile uh, and make sure that they're front of mind. And I think having uh, industry leadership from the various industry groups is really important. And I've certainly raised these matters with uh, the New South Wales Business Chamber, uh, and I've encouraged them to do the same with their other industry and affiliate bodies. Um, but as I mentioned, when I was making my comments, it's important for government to also lead by example, not just to identify people that are in the workplace and may not have stuck up their hand and said, I'm someone with a disability. Um, and often the feedback is that people uh, feel bullied into actually admitting that, which is um, extraordinary that in 2020 that that is still a uh, still a bother and a burden. It shouldn't be. Uh, but as I mentioned, it's also important that governments identify people at the recruitment stage. Mm -hmm. I um, I have some inputs on this as well. Um, we like Minister Ward. Look, I think we we need to be careful about um, you know making this a very positive message. I think that we need to. Um, I like you know, business can do a lot of things in society. Um, we can't expect business to do everything. Um, you know, I think that um, what they're doing with New South Wales government, giving people an opportunity to get started is a great way to start. Um, larger businesses, especially ones who are in a better position. So, you know, uh, take, for example, banking or something. This is a great opportunity to give people a start. At my stage of a career, it's less of an issue being sort of having low vision because I've got runs on the board. And I think it's really about giving those opportunities. Once people get opportunities, they can run it themselves, but you need to give people opportunity to get started. And um, I think we need to be um, – I'd like to see more business participation, um, but I think we need to be careful about being heavy-handed about that. I think we need to um, – you know, do, do we could we could be targeted and be, be – be, uh, uh, effective in their targeting and be very positive. 
Oh, and there's one more thing I might mention is um, um, it's not just about employment. It's about business opportunities as well. So, uh, so you know, at a self-interest point of view, we, we could uh, see uh, opportunities for uh, businesses owned by blind and visually impaired people uh, get tenders at government or, or businesses. So, look, you know, it's not just about employment as the only solution. I think um, just to reiterate what Minister Ward and Matt have already said, I think education is sort of the first step um, with pushing for change. So a lot of companies, I think, look at um, disability and on that spectrum of diversity is a very black and white spectrum. And, you know, really speaking, vision conditions are all shades of grey. So I think having an understanding of what it actually is to have a vision condition and what it's like to live and work with one by having that sort of an understanding, I think companies can make more informed decisions about how to work with and hence manage their employees as well. And I think that will also start pushing in um, greater movement and greater accessibility for especially university age students coming out of university and into the workforce, giving them the confidence, knowing that their future employers will actually understand what it's like um, for them to work and how they can be effectively managed. Yeah, look, certainly I think... Uh at SafeSide Institute, we found that education has been one of the big problem areas. And, and we actually started a family day to help with the transitions for, you know, young children starting school, transitioning to high school, and then transitioning to university. And I think that's a, a very good point that there's an enormous unmet need for sort of inside and information and new and, and harnessing the technology that we've got to make sure that, for example, the universities and the, the secondary schools understand what they need to do so that vision impaired people can actually have the same opportunities and be able to read the exam papers the same way and things like that. That, that was, we, with our family days, we've actually got the teachers to come along and we've educated special needs teachers and lots of people in the education system about that. John, I think you had an interesting recent example of the challenges in education. Thanks, Peter, and uh, thanks for the chance to comment. Just in the HSC exam this week, the English paper, the main stimulus was a picture. And uh, for one of my severely visually impaired patients really struggled because there was the only clues they were given was a very short you know, description of the of the picture and yet they were supposed to spend a three-hour exam writing about that image and interpreting it so even in this you know 2020 we're still having those challenges the same thing happened in the maths they didn't provide the tactile graphs so we still have a little way to go I have another question which really follows on from Matt's and Simran's sort of we're trying to get that start in employment. And the question that's come on the chat line is, do you reveal your vision impairment at the job interview or in your CV when you apply for those jobs? And I'd be interested in what the panel has to say about that. This is a, um, an issue that comes up, especially for people with guide dogs or, or use a cane. Um, and um, I, mean, I, I usually don't because I have an ability to hide it. It becomes obvious when I meet you, um, but, but I have the ability to sort of uh, uh, keep it a bit hidden. Uh, it's less difficult. So it's, it's, it's hard for someone of a guide dog to do that, obviously. Um, but that, that's the opportunity of COVID-19. Um, you know, you don't, you don't uh, this is the door that could uh, let people through, let people give them a go. Um, 
you know, uh, these things removed from the judgment uh, of, an, of a potential employer. So I think it's a massive opportunity. I think um, just following on from Matt's point, so traditionally, especially um, in the corporate sphere, we have had interviews where you have a group panel and then an individual interview. And often um, for visually impaired people, the group interviews are quite hard because you often have to read off a stimulus. And if you can't read a piece of paper, well, then, you know, your chances of actually succeeding in the group element are quite, you know, they're quite low. But with COVID this year, I know that um, our firm had all video interviews and the group interview um, format was significantly different. And that just gave a huge step up to people who maybe um, access their information via technological means. Um, And I think it levels the playing field a lot. So going forward, if we do integrate more um, video capabilities or just, you know, make the playing field for interviews more level, I think... There's scope and definitely we've seen it through COVID and we've seen the success given the people that we have hired. Um, so I think going forward, it's, a, it's well worth integrating video means just to make it more accessible for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I, I would say that, yes, I have, um, but it's always been pretty obvious. I think, um, uh, and I have to say, it's never, it's never been a burden. Um, it's never been a bother. Uh, and um, uh, I'd encourage people to actually be blunt about it um, because if you're honest with your employer, that actually says something about your character too. I think that the, the tendency has been from some people to think that they have to hide it. But uh, I think to be upfront about these things is always the best solution. Hmm. So if, if we turn that around and, and say, so if you imagine you're the business, sort of often the, the first time they, they encounter someone with vision impairment is a great concern for them as well. Are there any tips that the panellists would give the business owner to help them understand better and to manage these sorts of uh, complex issues? Matt, I think you've you've uh, tro- walked both sides of that. Street. I have walked both sides, yes. Um, oh, look, you know, um, what tips should I give? Look, you know, um, I mean, the easiest way to, to, to sort of cut that cut through that, that that complex question is to say people are people. Um, you know, I think um, I, I guess it's important to remember that um, you're not asking for something. It's important for, for for visually impaired and blind people to not ask for something that they're not entitled to, not ask for something that gives them an unfair advantage. Ask for what's fair and equal and don't go beyond that. I think that that's an important sort of position to take. And I think if you take a principled position like that, I think that comes across. Um, as an employer, I think that, that that's – I think the, the flip side of that's true. Uh, you know, it's possible to make reasonable accommodations. After all, we're all humans. Um but it shouldn't shouldn't go beyond anything that, that that's that's reasonable. Well, the great thing, having I suppose had a well, having a visual impairment, you actually know what sort of additional expectations uh, you you would have on yourself and what you would have on other staff. It's it's interesting when um, the uh, fully able-bodied staff aren't able to meet the mark that you can, <laughs> and it's a way of actually being a bit of a trailblazer, I suppose, and saying, well, if this is what I'm able to do in terms of output, you should be able to do the same, if not if not if not better. Um, so I think it's important that when you've had that lived experience, to also extend that to others. And I've actually seen. Uh, people with with disabilities be, be harder on other people with disabilities. I think um, you know it's important that you, um, if you have expectations uh, in the way that people treat you, that you are also empathetic in the same direction. I think um, just from an employee perspective, we if you've 
if you do have a vision impairment, generally you do know exactly what sort of tools you need um, to help you function at the optimal level. And having that open and honest conversation with an employer or a potential employer also gives them an understanding of what they might need um, as a company to provide for you. And I think that that takes out the guesswork for them to know whether, you know, you are a right fit and it helps um, them also understand the nature of the condition. So it just makes it easier for everyone if you come prepared showing this is what I need, this is how I work. Um, and it allows the employer, I guess, to humanise the condition a little bit more. Um, so I guess maybe I could direct this to you initially, Minister. The, the, some of the, the audience want to know more about if employment uh, commitments are, are part of future you know, inclusion plans. Oh, yes, no, absolutely. So as I mentioned, um, the Premier's got a commitment of a 5.6% target. Now, um, this is not just some, you know, uh, uh, flimsical, you know, statement, social media tile, uh, you know, quick headline grabber. This is actually a Premier's priority. Um, and just to put that into context, there are 14 Premier's priorities. And one of the ones that she has um, uh, said to her uh, secretary of her department is that she expects all departments to have 5.6% of uh, their agencies with people who have identified disabilities. So uh, we're doing our best as part of recruitment processes to make sure that that is something that is identified and supported so that um, uh, when people go through that recruitment process, as Simran mentioned for the New South Wales government, it's not something that you feel like uh, it's a burden to ask for that particular extra support that you may need to uh Give, it, give the job your all as, as anyone else would be able to. It's about providing that level playing field, which is so important. Um, so that's certainly now uh, forming more so a part of our recruitment uh, and also, uh, uh, you know, in terms of um, thinking about how we meet those targets, not just simply identifying people already in the public service, but making sure we recruit um, people with disabilities to new jobs that exist as well. And maybe I could direct this next question to Simran and Matt. There's a... There's a question from the audience where this particular person who works in recruitment says he rarely gets uh, VI people in particular applying for jobs. Is that is that your perception as living in the VI community? Or is, are there are there steps that can be done to improve sort of uh, I suppose the well-being, as you were saying earlier, Simran, of people who are living with a visual disability, to help them uh, get out and apply for for positions? Yeah, for sure. I think. Um Often what happens is as we step out of the comforts of university, because university is a very supportive sector, um, coming into the workforce is quite scary. It feels almost like falling off a cliff because um, we, we don't really have the same support network as what we're used to in our schooling and university education. And that often hinders us from wanting to apply for jobs because we're unsure whether we will be able to access the same levels of support. So, it's, I think, um, people with a vision condition, especially university students who are in their penultimate or final years, should take the leap, step out and try. It's a process of trial and error and it's not going to always be the first fit that works. And often that's the, that's the case with finding a job for anyone. So I think for all, of, for all the students out there, take the step, take the leap, 
try and apply for all the positions that you know that you're capable of doing. Obviously, don't apply for something if it's well out of your capabilities um, and it will become, you know, a point of rejection because you're not the right fit. But it's a, ma- it's a matter of just taking the leap, stepping out and realizing that, yes, we might have eye conditions, but that doesn't mean that we're any less capable than our able-sighted peers. That's for sure. Mm. Um, I, I've got a part of it. My answer is pretty straightforward. I think groups like the Safe Side Institute do a great job with their medical innovations, and, and that means we're seeing rare, rarely people in, in the younger age groups with, with significant low vision or blindness, and I think it's great. And part of the reason why you might not see applicants who are significantly visually impaired or blind is because at least in the 20s and 30s and early 40s, there's not many of them. Uh, and that's a testament to science, and I love science. Obviously, as you move into the older age groups, it becomes more prevalent. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but, but these, these mid-career, late-career people, uh, they have a little bit more career capital they can fall back on. Now, obviously, that doesn't always work. So, so there's, there's stories of people who have had to um, give up careers when they've lost their vision. And that's been really, really tough. It's been horrible for them. Uh, and then they have to start again and they need someone to give them a go. So mm-hmm. it's all about, um, uh, you know, the reason you're not seeing many is because there isn't many. But when you do see them, um, please try and um, uh, look at us like, like, you know, be a good human, you know, try and look, mm-hmm. at, look through the, the disability and look at the, the ability. The thing that struck me, Matt, particularly when you were talking, is is that sort of epidemic, so to speak, of older Australians who have significant visual disability. I mean, despite the massive advances in treatment, particularly for diseases like diabetic retinopathy and for age-related macular degeneration and glaucoma, sadly, there are still significant numbers of older Australians uh, with visual uh, impairment and blindness. And... Uh, it must be well. I know from experience with my patients, it's often a, a, a very large hurdle and a major uh, sort of problem for them to come to terms with, let alone restart their careers. Minister, is there anything in in your proposals to support VI people that looks at specifically at older Australians or older New South Wales citizens? Uh, look, that's a very good question. I look, obviously, we want to make sure that our state is inclusive for all people, younger people, older people, um, and the strategies that we have in place don't really target uh, aged demographics. It's it's about inclusive inclusivity for everybody. Um, so I know that there are additional burdens there. That's certainly something I can I can take a look at um, moving forward. But um, mm-hmm. we have on our um, Disability Advisory Council people of all ages and stages, and uh, certainly we appreciate their input. Um, and I mentioned earlier that we're about to put the uh, Disability Inclusion Act review to Parliament with some recommendations and changes. And certainly anything we can do to improve a lot of people with vision impairments often actually assists older Australians anyway, because as you get older, that eyesight is not always as good as it used to be. So you actually find that some of the um, the, the features that government has changed around accessibility from everything from websites through to, say, services like Service New South Wales that are far more accessible today um, mm. actually are, are real winners for older Australians as well. I guess to follow on from that, one of the things that's uh, that's important is is having somebody who's able to sort of join all the dots here and to connect uh, pa- uh, patients and and VI persons with the right services. 
John, would you be able to comment on some of the experiences from Save Site regarding? Look, I think one of the things that's come from the Save Site Family Day, which Matt and Simon have both contributed to significantly, and they've challenged us to do better in the jobs we do. And one of the things I think that strikes a, a chord with a lot of people is when people go and see their eye doctor or their doctor and they're told they've got vision impairment, unfortunately, they think they're going to go blind and lose their sight the next day. So, and then they might be given a card to one of the vision rehabilitation services and there's a gap in the time to reach that phase. What SafeSight has done with some philanthropic funding is to have a patient care coordinator that helps link those families to the vision support services. And this has been really well received. It's been helpful for metropolitan Sydney, but also particularly for regional New South Wales to help make these links. It's now becoming overwhelmed and it's over when we try and link with the social work departments in the hospitals, it's also over overwhelmed there from the other aspects. So this is a an area of unmet need that has come out from these Save Site Family Days. And we are hoping to sort of try and see how we can expand that service to help more people uh, who are in this situation of, of having families that never experienced vision impairment before and how to choose whether they go to Vision Australia, Royal Institute for Deaf and Blind or Guide Dogs or the other services that are available. So I suppose that'd be interesting to hear the panelists' experience about this and uh, linking between services. Thanks, John. Um, Simran or Matt, would you like to comment on, on the role of patient care coordinators and how useful they might be? So I haven't had too much experience with patient care coordination, but I do see the benefits in, I guess, having someone who can sort of take the guesswork out of where to go next. Um, and I guess this also falls in line. My experience is definitely with um, counsellors and guidance um, individuals through my education more specifically, where I had a team at university who I could go to if I ever needed any sort of support um, with my exams or assessments. So in having that, like I knew who I could reach out to and it sort of took out like all the stress and the guesswork in making my education more accessible and definitely like, you know, giving me all the options and the advantages that I could gain. Um, I do see the benefits in a patient care system. I think it's useful, especially for parents if they do have young children um, and it's sort of, you know, the first, the early days of trying to understand the condition and how it will impact their lives. Um, having someone who can take you into the right directions is definitely helpful. So I agree. Uh, look, I think the patient care coordinator uh, initiative is, is great. Uh, it's hard to negotiate what could, uh, the, the, the different commercial service providers. Um, and I think that having, having like someone that could help sort of navigate that world is, is, is great. So I think it's a great initiative. I think it's really helpful to... Uh, to the uh, to, to people who find themselves in this situation, um, I think it's amazing. So yeah, I think it's well, good funding. Uh, uh, good funding that position. So just in relation to that, um, today the Commonwealth actually opened uh, applications for seventy five million dollars of information linkages and capacity building grants to 
organisations, and obviously that's all about um, keeping people out of the the national disability insurance scheme and, and helping to give them access to mainstream services. But look, uh, I think having good advocates is always important. And um, I announced an extension of advocacy funding um, last week uh, for those people that are not in the NDIS, because as we know, the majority of people with disabilities aren't actually in the national disability insurance scheme. And you know, we, we want to make sure the scheme is there for people that need those supports. But at the same time, we want to also try and keep people out of the scheme if we can. Um, so uh, we've done a, a range of uh, of work in partnership with the Commonwealth. And um, as Minister from our state, I meet with all of the disability ministers from around the nation every 90 days because we're shareholders in the scheme. It's not just a case of the Commonwealth being responsible for everything. Um, we actually have a real say in things like market stewardship around pricing and the policy that uh, exists under the NDIA. Um, so we've been able to push for things like justice liaison officers to assist people with disabilities uh, when they may be going through a justice journey, either as a um, uh, as someone who is a defendant or as someone who might be a witness. Um, but um, we've also... Uh, We've also pushed uh, the cause around uh, national disability advocacy funding, and there is advocacy grants available from the Commonwealth, but in recognition that we also need advocacy at a state level. As I say, we were the first state to introduce an agent disability commissioner with the powers that we have in this state. And for those that aren't familiar with the work of the New South Wales Agent Disability Commission and its commissioner, Robert Fitzgerald, I'd encourage you uh, to familiarise yourself because that's all about um, the gaps that sometimes exist in the system having somewhere to go so that if people feel like they're getting duck shoved from the Quality and Safeguards Commission federally or um, from disability agencies within departments at a state level, there is somebody there to help uh, to make sure that uh, you don't fall through the cracks. Thank you very much. There, there's a, another question which is slightly sort of changing, the, I, I suppose, the conversation direction, but still important, was that uh, a couple of the audience members were concerned that as these supports move online, that may that may detract from that sort of personal connection and, and the sort of one-to-one sort of uh, journey that you can have, Simran, as you were saying, with your team at the university. Do, do any of you think that that's going to be a plus or a minus as these things become more into the virtual workspace given the, the changing community that we're, we're living and working in now? Peter, I think that's certainly a risk. Uh, I think that's certainly a risk, um, but I think that's the case for anybody, frankly. I mean, uh, if... Um, you know, you're working more from home because of COVID and you're not interacting with as many people, um, you know, that, that's one thing. But I, I can tell you that, sadly, we've seen um, increases in the rates of suicide uh, and mental illness across the community more broadly. And, and often it's people who are vulnerable that these mm-hmm. circumstances impact on more so. Uh, so I know it's important that um, we do reach out um, to friends, family, neighbours, regardless of whether they have a disability or not. Um, one of the, the things that I did when COVID uh, certainly became very profound and, and front of mind was to uh, ask my agency to ring vulnerable social housing tenants over the age of 70, uh, to ring them three times. We didn't get a response. We went out to see them. And I asked uh, the same thing of the NDIA federally uh, for people that are vulnerable uh, to make sure that we were keeping that contact contact going because I think loneliness uh, throughout this period has been something that's been more profound than it ever at any point in our history um, and more so for people that are that, that are living with disability and particularly people that uh, have disabilities who are singles um, that is a particularly 
profound group of people that have had to contend with um, extraordinary challenges uh, throughout this time. I think that the in-person versus online delivery of services might be more a discussion for education where there's a need to switch um, formats or where, you know, very specialised workplace arrangements. But, but you know, getting back to the focus on um, employment and self-reliance and self-sufficiency, I'm not sure um, how it relates um to this, I mean, I know that some service providers provide, you know, job-ready programs, and maybe there's some benefit in doing that in person, um, mm-hmm. you know. But but ultimately, you know, uh, you know, it's getting back to the basics. You know, the basics yeah. are, um, you know, giving someone a go. Um, mm. You know, support's important, but it's 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 the catalyst, not the the driver. Uh, as we moved more online, I think it it sort of um, gives people with vision-related illnesses a larger scope of opportunity um, simply because a lot of the tools that we need are technologically driven. Um, so there's that. And I, and I think support will always shift. I think the means of support offered and the, and the support services provided will always shift and adapt to um, the way in which the world changes. You know, um, in, in the past, we used to have exams on paper um, and obviously our support teams would give, um, you know, more time, extra lighting, for example. Now, as the exams move online, I think the supports have changed. Um, so definitely, I think, yes, there is a risk of that lack of personal um, relation building, but support and support giving will manifest and change as the environment does. Right. You know, it would be useful for ongoing uh, physical support if we all stop working from home as a society. I mean, one of the big challenges that low vision and blind people constantly run into is transportation and, and you know, there's opportunities to, to help in that area. Mm. Um, you know, um, you know, as I said, except for special circumstances, I, I, I you know, you know, it's quite good at the moment. Online is an opportunity, not a threat. Yeah, no, I agree. Which I, I guess brings me uh, nicely to the uh, to the next uh, the next question from from the audience. Uh, this uh, audience member said that research has shown that access to vision rehabilitation services and to support for VI people is these things are best uh, if accessed early. Yet there seems to be a, a low uptake of these vision services, which I suppose goes somewhat to some of the things John was saying earlier. But uh, the question says, can you suggest any strategies to increase the uptake of referral and access to, to these services? Well, look, um, I can make some comment in relation to um, early childhood, early intervention uh, supports through the NDIS. Um, one of the first things I took up at my first um, Disability Reform Council meeting of ministers on the 26th of June last year was the fact that children were not getting the timely response they needed from the NDIS. So uh, we brought forward a paper which uh, encouraged the Commonwealth to have a time frame in which if children weren't accepted into a particular planned um, uh, a particular plan that they would get a basic package, uh, which uh, the Commonwealth agreed to. So now after 50 days, if a child that's been accepted into the scheme hasn't been properly assessed, they actually get um, a package of supports. And, and that, that addresses that very issue you raised, Peter, that um, we do uh, have um, a problem with people getting the supports early. And look, again, that is something that isn't just exclusive to people with vision impairments. I can tell you that my youth justice system as Minister for Youth Justice is full of kids with hearing impairments that simply didn't get 
the hearing checks early enough. Um, eye checks are obviously mandatory for kids. Hearing checks are not. And um, that that can have um, impacts on, on kids that uh, unfortunately end up getting involved with the criminal justice system. And, and that's often not identified uh, till they're walking through the doors of a detention centre, which is absolutely heartbreaking. That's not how it should be. Um, so uh, I would totally agree that the earlier you can get involved with identifying issues, the earlier you can help support uh, children and young people to get the right supports. Um, and look, it frustrates me that we still have problems even today with even the most basic issues in schools. Uh, one of my bugbears, which I have continued to raise, is the way in which uh, the National Education Standards Authority treats testing regimes for kids too often we see kids given the right supports assessed early uh, for exams right through to year 12 and then five minutes to midnight before their trial exams or their hsc uh, we're seeing a change to their plan um, uh, and told that you know instead of using a laptop you're going to have to use a scribe that is absolutely not acceptable it's important to identify early and then make sure that regime is kept in place because to change that can change what somebody has um, developed their life skills using, and, and that, that's certainly not acceptable. We need to be consistent. Th thanks very much, Minister. Absolutely correct. Uh, Matt or Simran, in the, the last few seconds, is there anything else that you would like to add? The only thing is, is the, the age of online is going to be the age that we could uh, you know, get some opportunities into the system, and I'm excited about that. And I think let's do it, and and if we can, you know, do a bit of funding to help. With, with SSI and similar programs to, to, to get that flywheel moving, let's do it. Great. Fantastic. Well, look, we've reached the end of the end of the, the session. I'd like to, to thank very much uh, Matt uh, Simran and, and Minister Ward for their time and their, their expert uh, sort of inputs in, into, this, uh, into the session. I, I guess we set out with the aim today being to start this conversation because clearly there's a problem. Uh, and there's a lot that can be done. And I think that COVID, as we've been talking about, has given us a real unexpected opportunity to explore new solutions and to use the things that, uh, that are available uh, to us uh, to, to help this. So thank you very much, everyone. It's been a, a terrific session. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks very much for your contributions and for, and for your uh, support. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Euro Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.